0: Well, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and uh, happy Valentine's Day to everyone. I'm wearing my light red shirt in uh, celebration of Valentine's Day. Uh, I, am, I am the pastor of love is my nickname, and it's great to be able to celebrate uh, God's love on, on Valentine's Day. And, and so if you're there in Acts chapter 2, if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. And I'm going to begin in verse 41. This is from Peter's, Peter's concluding his sermon, and he's been talking to the Jews there in Jerusalem, and they've, they've said, okay, what do we do? And, and it says in verse 40, he tells them to save themselves from this crooked generation. Then we come to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. his word this morning. Let's let's pray. And heavenly Father, we we thank you for just the great truths about you that we've we've sung this morning. Uh, the, the hymn that is is based on the uh, the Nicene Creed there that, that that ties together all these these truths that, that Scripture teaches about who you are, and then uh, just the the great song that Ben and Jen just just sang to us. We recognize our inability to, to fully worship you as you deserve and help us to continue to grow in that, to pursue you above all else. We thank you for this, this passage here in Acts that helps us understand the type of community you desire us to be a part of, and by your grace, help us to pursue that. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been talking about Baptism, and spent uh, several weeks talking about baptism, and now we're talking about membership. and and I thought our conversations on baptism went went really well. I was encouraged by our conversations. I think it helped that we were just very clear and uh, direct. There was a lot of uh, transparency and just kind of laying some things out there. And I felt like the tone of the conversation was very gracious. and I think our church is stronger for having had that conversation and I want us to do the same when it comes to membership as we have this conversation about church membership that God would help us just to be very clear in our communication, direct in our communication, transparent and and gracious that we would have a, a time of talking through these things and then at the end of the time God would have us be a stronger church as a result of this conversation as well and so as I kind of begin, there's again. just want to lay these things out on the table so that we're just again being transparent and, and real with one another. Uh, there's kind of two main issues that I, I want us to think through as we talk about church membership. There's a lot of, of secondary issues that, that hopefully we'll, we'll talk through as we talk about church membership, but, but two, two primary issues that I, I think we need to address, and, and one is this reality. The reality that there is a significant portion of people who are coming to Bethany Community Church, who are committed to Bethany Community Church to one degree or another, and love the church. There's a significant percentage of people who fall into that category, and yet are philosophically opposed to the idea of church membership. Maybe they'd say, well, the phrase, church membership doesn't occur in Scripture, or maybe they feel like that's kind of a legalistic thing to engage in as they think about what church membership is. And so there's a significant portion of people with whom we'd be in relationship. We love and do ministry together and partner together in many ways. There's a significant percentage of people. I don't know the exact percentage, but in my conversations, I know it's a significant size in terms of the number of people. Uh, who would would say, I'm I'm kind of philosophically opposed to church membership. And and that's a reality that I think we need to talk about uh, the next few weeks as we talk about church membership. And then the second issue that we need to to talk about and and deal with as we think about church membership are those who may not be philosophically opposed to church membership, but we might be opposed to church membership in terms of practicing it. (laughs) In other words, maybe we've filled out the paperwork, we've filled out the form, we've been affirmed by the elders and the church, and so we're we're church members on on paper. But in terms of of actually doing what Scripture says we need to do in terms of fellowshipping with one another, we fall short, And, and that's probably all of us to one degree or another, right? So when it comes to talking about church membership, even that phrase, church membership, can be a a little bit of an obstacle. To those who are philosophically opposed to church membership, saying church membership can be an obstacle to them because they think church membership and they think something unbiblical, like that's a a thing that's unbiblical and so it can be kind of an obstacle. And then for those in that second category, church membership can be an obstacle because they believe they've done something biblical when in reality they haven't. They say, okay, well I fill out these forms and so I've fulfilled my biblical obligation to be a member of a church. And yet, and yet, we haven't. We haven't gone as deep as God would require us, would desire us to go in terms of relationship. So, well, here's what I want to do. Here's my suggestion. And, and by suggestion, I'm just being nice. There's not really anything you can do about it. But here, here's my proposal for what we do as we, we talk about church membership. I'm going to take the phrase, church membership here, and I'm, just going to, I'm going to remove it from the conversation. I'm going to put it on a shelf back here, and we're going to come back to it later. But we're just going to take the term, the phrase church membership out of our conversation mostly for this morning. And instead, what we're going to do is just talk about what Scripture says regarding fellowship and, and relationship. And then uh, next week, I'm going to bring church membership back, dust it off, and we'll talk about how church membership helps us fulfill those things. But I want us to talk about fellowship and, and what I think is meant by church membership. But I, I think that phrase church membership can be unhelpful in the beginning of our conversation so I want to kind of remove it for just a little bit and then we'll then we'll bring it back but we'll talk about fellowship and the biblical model of fellowship and and hopefully we'll do this in a, again in a gentle loving way and and uh, I want to persuade you uh, as to what I believe scripture teaches about our fellowship and what scripture teaches us about how we should we relate to one another. And then after we've we've done that, uh, we'll we'll talk about how we implement it in our relationships here. So how are we going to do this? I want us to think through three questions about church membership and about church fellowship. And as we think through these three questions, we're going to see where we land and we'll kind of really take the first one this morning and then kind of look at the, the second two next week, and the next week also just kind of talk through some practical questions. And so if you have some questions about church membership and about what we're talking about, I encourage you to email those to me or email those to the church office or call or just talk to me, um, text me, whatever, and we'll try to deal with some of those at least next week in the last half of the sermon. But we're going to walk through three questions. We're going to kind of ask what is what does this community that God wants me to be a part of look like? And then we'll ask ourselves what's, what's necessary to have these types of relationships, and then what does that look like in our cultural context? We'll talk through those three questions and then some practical questions next week as well. So let's let's dive into it, and let's ask ourselves this, this first question, what does the community that God has called me to be a part of look like? When we're talking about being together here at Bethany Community Church, what does God desire this community to look like. And let me begin to answer that question by telling you what I believe the community isn't supposed to look like. Because sometimes we've had some wrong perceptions of what this community looks like. For example, uh, some people have thought of this community that we call the church as kind of a, a political force. Okay? That's a wrong understanding of this community. So for example, you think about the Middle Ages on, on a grand scale, how people viewed the church as this political institution and to be a part of the state was to be a part of the church, and to be a part of the church was to be part of a state. And so the church was this political force that people used to implement their will on the lives of other people. That's a a wrong understanding of the community of faith. But for some people to be a church member was to be a member of a a political organization to be a member of a national identity that's a wrong understanding that also takes place on a, on a small scale right people also think of the church as a political force on a on a smaller scale when i was in college uh, someone gave me a book to read called well-intentioned dragons well-intentioned dragons and it was it was just a it was kind of like a nightmare read it was about people in the church who meant well, but in reality kind of tore apart a church as they attacked leadership. And I read through that book, and it's like story after story of political fighting, and there'd be a story about a pastor who would come to a church, and someone would be really nice to him at the beginning, and then, you know, knife him in the back, and just like story after story, nightmare after nightmare. And as I read this book, one thing became very, very clear to me. Um... I do not want to be a pastor. Like I just was very clear on that. And an associate pastor's wife uh, came to me and she said, "Hey, I think God's going to call you into ministry." And I said, "You are crazy." I mean this in a nice way, and no, no offense to your husband, but that sounds like the worst job in the world. Okay, and why did I think that? I thought that because of, of what I thought about the church. I thought of the church as kind of this political force and and infighting and and kind of uh, just this this mess, this political organization, and I'd, I'd been through two church splits, and it just, that was not a job I desired to have. That's not, fortunately, what God wants his church to be either, right? So this community of faith isn't to be a, a political force. Uh, the, the church that God has called us to be a part of is also not to be some sort of social club, right? It's not to be a social club, Sometimes, as we think about the church, we think, "Okay, the church is going to organize potlucks and and uh, or things for my kids, and it's going to do this, these things for my, um, you know, if I'm a, uh, a lady, it's going to have these these lady activities. If I'm a man, it's going to have these these manly things that we do. And so, the the church is going to be this this social organization, for me. this the social club." Uh, Jonathan Layman is a, an author, and he's at uh, 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 Sorry, Capitol Hills Baptist Church in uh, Washington D.C. The Nine Marks Organization. He wrote a a great book on church membership. It's called um, "Church Membership" by by Jonathan Lehman. Great book. And in it, he he deals with this idea that the church is meant to be a, a something more than a social club. He says, you know, the the church isn't a social club. It's it's an embassy. You know, it's it's a an organization that's this, that this that exists within a, a community not just to cause there to be social activities for that community, but it's a, a force within that community calling that community, that, that, that entity in which it exists, that that social sphere in which it exists, it, it's calling that entity, that social organization, that community, to repentance and to, to transformation, to submission to the, the king of kings. On the, the trip to Israel that we're at recently, our guide was, was pointing out the consulate, from the United States there in Jerusalem. And he said, you know, the the embassy for the United States is not here in Jerusalem, it's actually in Tel Aviv. And there would be huge political consequences to moving the embassy from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. And as I kind of researched it later, I I found out that the uh, United States Congress passed a law in the 1990s stating that the embassy was to be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And yet every president from Clinton through Obama has has delayed that. They have like these six month six month extensions, saying not yet, not yet, not yet, because of the huge political implications of calling Jerusalem under Israel's control, recognizing that formally as the United States government. An embassy is a big deal. A social club is not. The church is not some social club that exists to fill people's social calendars. The church is a force a divine force from God that calls a community, that calls people to repentance as representatives of God himself. A social club, the mindset is, well, look, I I pay my dues. I, I join it. I tell it what services I want it to provide for me and the members of my family or my friends. A church is not a social club. That's not the community that God's called us to be a part of. And then also, as we think about this community that God has called me to be a part of and what it's not, the church is also, and I want to be very gentle as I say this. The church is also not an institution that has a right to abuse its authority. And many of you, I know, in a room this size and with this many people, many of you have experienced spiritual abuse of, of one form or another from a church. And someone asked me this past week um, whether or not I believe it's, it's a sin for a person not to join a church. I said, well, what we need to realize is that as people come, for example, to Bethany Community Church, many of them are, are coming from situations in which they have been hurt very, very deeply. And one of the first responsibilities that that we have as leaders of a church is to communicate to people that that Bethany is a safe place. And so I think there needs to be a lot of graciousness as we interact with people who've come from, from difficult situations. And maybe this is where you're from. You've come from a situation in which. You've suffered some abuse at the hands of church leadership, and it makes you very wary about becoming a member of a community of faith, committing to a community of faith. And, and in spiritual abuse, uh, takes all different forms, right? I mean, there's abuse through legalism. You think about Acts 15, and what happens in Acts 15? some believers from Jerusalem, the church there, go to the church at Antioch, and they say, look, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Now, that's a pretty profound thing to tell a person. Unless you, you do this physical act, you can't have a relationship with God. And you can imagine how an incredibly, uh, abu- that's not just bad theology, it's not just bad teaching, it's, it's abusive teaching. And the same is true today. Oftentimes, people will take some, guidelines for their life that might be helpful for them, and they'll say, oh, those things are prescriptive. You have to do these things as well. You have to dress this way, act this way, do these certain things in order to have a right relationship with God, and that can be abusive. There can be abuse through bad teaching. Second Peter is a, something I'm going to reference several times here in the next couple of minutes. 2 Peter 2 describes false prophets who will, quote, Secretly bring in destructive heresies. That's what Peter writes in Second Peter 2. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies. These, those are teachings that, that harm a person, that destroy their spiritual life. There can be abuse through selfishness on the part of leadership. Second Peter 2 verse 3 says, In their greed, these false teachers will exploit you. And so there's these, these people who are in positions of leadership, and they use that position of spiritual authority to, to exploit the people that are in their, in their fellowship. We've all seen examples of this. And quite frankly, Christians are easy people to exploit for financial gain, and we've all seen it. There's abuse through physical harm. There's abuse through immorality. Second Peter 2, again, says that these false teachers have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. And these may be some of the major reasons that a person would say, I don't want, I'm, I'm philosophically opposed to, to committing myself to the life of a church. Because I've seen what leadership does. I've seen what other Christians do. And I, I just don't want to be a part of that. I've been hurt too deeply. I can't commit myself to that and experience that again. Now let me say something. Again, I hope this is, is gentle. But let me say something that might be kind of hard. As a parent, you've, if you're a parent, you've, you've seen this, this phenomenon. You have a child, an older sibling, and you're kind of watching older sibling and younger sibling interact. And, and you watch, and, and older sibling goes to younger sibling who has something older sibling wants. And older sibling grabs it, right? Just snatches it. I'm bigger, I can do what I want. I want that, boom, right? All, all parents have seen this. And as a parent, you get, you're getting ready to address what you've just seen older sibling do. But before you can say something, what happens? Younger sibling asserts their disagreement with what's just happened, right? A younger sibling begins to yell at older sibling, push, grab, something, right? And now, what what do you have as a parent? Instead of just having to address what older sibling has done, now you've got to address younger sibling as well. In other words, younger sibling has been sinned against, but because of younger sibling's response, now younger sibling has sinned as well. Here's the frustrating thing. For me, as I think about my own spiritual life, so often, whenever someone has sinned against me, I become a sinner as well in my response to it. Now, now here's here's the hard thing. Here's, Here's where I'm going with this. What other people or institutions have done to you does not negate your responsibility to be obedient to God in terms of pursuing fellowship. No matter how terrible the things that have been done to you are, things done to you by people in a church, things done to you by their church, no matter how terrible those things are, it doesn't negate your responsibility before God to be obedient in pursuing the fellowship that He's called you to pursue. It's a hard truth, but I think it's biblical. And why do I think it's biblical? Well, let me lay out. The right idea of fellowship here from Acts chapter 2. And if you're not there, let me encourage you to turn there again. Acts chapter 2. And this this passage isn't the entirety of biblical teaching on church fellowship, but it's a, it's a great start. And the first thing that I want you to do is look at the, the things to which this church, who wants to be obedient to God, must devote herself. So I'm going to be a part of the community that God's called me to be a part of. What are the things to which the church must devote herself to? We, we see those in verses 41 and 42. And so look there at the text. We're going to look at four things that the church must devote herself to. It says uh, those who received his words, this is Peter's words, were baptized. And I, I won't say much about that. You know, I could talk for about three weeks on baptism. Uh, so we'll move on here. And it says uh, they're baptized and they're added that day about 3,000 souls. These, these people become a, a part of this new community of faith. And, and what does it tell us about what this new church is doing? Well, first of all, it tells us that they were devoting themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to, one, the apostles' teaching, two, the fellowship, three, the breaking of bread, four, prayers. Let's, let's talk through those. What's the first thing that we see this church devoting herself to? Well, it's a church that's devoted to the scripture. It's devoted to the apostles' teaching, to God's word. What does that mean? It means that the community that God has called me to be a part of is going to be a community that has, first of all, leadership that is devoted to teaching God's word, and secondly, has a congregation that is devoted to listening and understanding and learning about God's word. In fact, keep your finger there in Acts 2 and, and turn with me, if you would, to Second Timothy. Second Timothy, it's in the T section of your New Testament. There's First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. Uh, there, it's after the Thessalonians, and as we uh, look at Second Timothy, starting in chapter start in chapter two, two. Timothy is one of the most uh, influential books in even in Scripture that that have helped me understand what my task is as as a shepherd, as a teacher. Paul says, uh, verse one of Second Timothy two: "You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus." Verse 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so this is his task, Timothy's task as a teacher, is to to take what what he's learned and entrust it to other people as well. You come down into chapter 3, and chapter 3 he talks about false teachers and uh, the things that characterize these false teachers, and he tells Timothy in verse 10 of 2 Timothy 3, I want you to be different. And then we come to verse 14. This is 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us this great Theological statement about the nature of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. What is it that Timothy is to do? He is to be a person who's convinced of the things that he's learned in Scripture, because it's in Scripture that we have the ability to know who God is and be equipped to do everything spiritually that God requires of us. That's what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. There is nothing that God desires us to know or do, or to, nothing He desires us to be that can't be found in his word it is completely sufficient for us to be completely obedient to him that brings us to verse one of chapter four right what does paul tell timothy then what's timothy's job he says i charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who's to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom here's your task timothy preach the word One of the most fundamental questions that a church asks herself is what is my source of authority? To whom will I turn as I try to understand what it is that I'm to do and how I'm to engage in ministry? A few years ago, uh, one of our elders, uh, Kevin Martin, gave me a, a CD of a talk from a conference and it was a, a former pastor who was speaking and uh, this this pastor Kevin gave it to me and he said, "Hey, I want you to listen to this and may, there may be some some helpful things to glean from this and start listening to it and the guy this this pastor starts talking about how within his his first leadership team that he had there kind of there was like this coup and they began to like turn against him and and I can't remember how it all ended but you know maybe he got fired or almost fired or the church I mean it's just really really bad and I'm listening to this thinking why did, did Kevin give this to me? I mean, what is he planning? Uh, or like, is he warning me? Hey, got, hey Daniel, watch your back. Uh, but then I kept listening to it and, and realized that uh, the last half was really the, the part that he wanted me to, to grasp. The, the last half, this, this pastor begins talking about what he did with his next leadership team. He realized that the split that had occurred among leadership had been due to the fact that there were there were competing sources of authority. A situation would arise, and half the guys thought this, half the guys thought this, and there wasn't unity in looking to God's word. And so, what this pastor did, and what we did for a little while as elders for for a little a season here, was he would he would do this. He would take a scenario in church life, say, imagine that. A parent was going through this situation. Or imagine a teen in the church was going through this situation. Or imagine a married couple was going through this situation. And he'd lay out this scenario. And he'd say, okay, now elders, now leaders, let's let's spend a few minutes here at our meeting talking about what scriptures relate to this issue. And so all the leaders would share scriptures. Okay, now, based upon what scripture says, let's come to consensus about how we as leaders would handle that. Now, how did that help the church? It helped the church as it created a sense that the first thing that a leader does is turn to Scripture. It doesn't matter what the situation is, the heat of the moment, we can kind of get distracted by what people are involved or how our emotions are involved, but it, it helps leaders say, okay, we're going to focus on what Scripture says first. It also uh, gives leaders the, the practice of, of dialoguing together concerning what Scripture says, and coming to consensus and being committed to say, okay, no matter what our personal preferences would be, no matter how we desire to handle the situation on our own, we're going to submit ourselves and one another to God's Word. It's a beautiful exercise, and it helped tremendously. must be a church that has leaders committed to this and and, uh, an entire congregation committed to this. Acts 17.11 talks about how, as Paul and Silas came to Berea, how the, the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica who'd rejected God's word. It says these received, the, or the Jews in Thessalonica who'd, re, who'd rejected, it says they re, these Bereans received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. How do you evaluate the health of a church? Ultimately, it's not first the worship ministry or the youth ministry or the Bible studies, the, the, the fundamental thing I think you look at as you begin to evaluate a church is how is this church handling God's word? Are they devoted to it? You also see here in this, this text, the church, the second thing, they're devoted to scripture, they're also devoted to fellowship. Now, what does it mean to be devoted to fellowship? Well, it means more than just saying, hey, I, I like to hang out at the pool with these guys and, and do barbecue, and as we are having barbecue, hey, we're doing fellowship, this is awesome. Now fellowship goes more than that, Right? It's deeper. It's a heart attitude toward one another. First Peter one says uh, this is verse twenty two of first Peter, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Now love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then that heart attitude of love toward one another manifests itself in real, tangible, sacrificial ways. Romans twelve ten love one another with brotherly af- af- affection and Outdo one another in showing honor. How, how awesome is that to have a church full of people who are trying to outdo one another in showing honor and preference for each other? That's a biblical model of fellowship. First Peter 4. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. And all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have placed our faith in Christ, have received a, a spiritual gift. It says, as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh paul writes in galatians 5 but through love serve one another later galatians 6:10 as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so what does this community that God has called me to be a part of look like? Well, first of all, it's a community that's devoted to the Scripture. And secondly, it's a community that is devoted to fellowship. We are devoted to sacrificially caring for one another. As we come into relationship with one another, our desire isn't just to kind of have some friends that we enjoy doing things socially with, but as we enter into this relationship with one another, we recognize, I have the responsibility, the divine responsibility to devote myself to the well-being of every person who is a part of this church. Number three, as we think about things that we're devoted to, there's also a devotion to, to corporate holiness. Now it says here that they're devoted to themselves to the breaking of bread. He's talking there about communion, and we'll talk more about communion in the Lord's Supper in a couple weeks, but what do we know about communion? 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that a person is to examine himself or to examine herself as they begin to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so this this process of, of being devoted to the Lord's Supper meant that there was this, this process of being devoted to corporate holiness as the people came together. A, devo- a um, desire not just to live as they were, but to continue to pursue sanctification. Galatians 6 says, "Brothers, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest... You to be tempted. There's a devotion to Scripture. There's a devotion to fellowship. There's a devotion to corporate holiness, to the, the, the body of Christ, holding one another accountable to pursue holiness. And there's also here, what else? A devotion to prayer. A devotion to prayer. As we've gone through Ephesians, the Gospel of Luke, as we've gone through 1 John over and over again, we see the prayer. It's essential to do the ministry that God has called us to do. we see that a sovereign God not only ordains the ends of what he's going to accomplish, but he also ordains the means, how he is going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. And here's the truth that this church recognizes here in Acts 2, and a truth that you and I must acknowledge as well. If we do not pray, God will not act. If we do not pray, God will not act. God is ordained, He's the, the end, he's sovereign, absolutely, but he's also ordained the means by which he'll accomplish what he's going to accomplish. If we do not pray, God will not act. These are the things that this church is devoting herself to in Acts 2, and then we see the fruit. There's four fruits here of this devoted church. First of all, there's an awe of God, right? It says in verse 43, look at the text, awe came upon every soul. That's this this divine reverence. The word there can also mean fear. There's a fear of the holy. And as a church is committed to these things, devoting herself to scripture, devoting herself to God's word, devoting herself to fellowship, devoting herself to corporate holiness, devoting herself to prayer. As a church devotes herself to these things, the result is is an awe of God, a fear of God, a, a reverence for him. A second thing that exists here as a fruit of this devoted church is Holy Spirit-empowered ministry, right? Holy Spirit-empowered ministry. Look at verse 43 again. It says, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And we, we know from the book of Hebrews that there's some special ministries that exist here in the early church, but but even still, we know as we go through the rest of Scripture, that doesn't mean that's the end of the Spirit's work. We, we see evidence of the Spirit's work and changed lives. Lives being changed in a way that only God could accomplish. We see the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in lives, there's Holy Spirit-empowered ministry as a fruit of a devoted church. There's also, there's also uh, another fruit is, is deep relationships, deep relationships. Look at verses 44 and 45. These, these are perhaps two of the most uh, looked-to verses as people talk about what the ideal New Testament church looks like. Look at verse 44. It says, "...and all who believed were together." And they had all things in common. In fact, verse 45 says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this is a very remarkable thing, right? What Luke is describing here is he's describing family relationships. Uh, Whenever I provide a bed for my child or whenever I provide food for my child, my, my child doesn't say, hey, Dad, thanks for thanks for that. I mean, I know you didn't have to, but thanks for giving me a bed. Thanks for giving me the food this morning. This morning, none of my kids thanked me for breakfast. Zero, right? Why? Because there's an expectation that a family member, a father, is going to provide those things for his kids. If my parents are in some financial need or some physical need, there's a right expectation on their part, I hope, that I'm going to help meet those needs, right? Why? That they're family. Now, here's the amazing thing that takes place in the first century church. The relationships they have with one another become family-like relationships. There's this recognition that if another believer is in need, I have a a family obligation to care for him or her. It it is so profound that if I have a possession, and selling this possession would enable me to meet this physical need, my responsibility is to, to sell that thing that I have to meet their physical need. That's the level of joyful obligation I have in the first century church in the lives of other believers. Now, the same is true for you and me. The type of community, I want, I want us to grasp this, this so carefully because um, filling out a church membership application doesn't cut it. <laughs> God is calling us to something much, much deeper here, right? I have, as you come in and are part of this community of faith, I have an obligation to you like you are my my brother or my sister or my child or my mother. There is an obligation I have, and when you are in need, I have a responsibility to meet that need. That is the level of our relationship. That's the community that God has called us to be a part of. These are deep relationships. It's an exciting part of this passage that we read. It's not remarkable when you do this for family or kids, but it's remarkable when you do it with people that you don't even know that well or people that you don't have a societal obligation to care for. And finally, another fruit here is this joy in fellowship. There's just joy in fellowship with one another and and with God. God God is glorified as these believers experience joy in relationship. And we see them here in, in, in this passage just, Enjoying being, being together. It says they're, uh, they're day by day, they're attending the temple together, they're breaking bread in their homes, and they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, uh, praising God and, and having favor with all the people. In other words, there's not this, oh, I got to care for these people, we got to hang on in the temple, we got to break the bread together. There's joy in fellowship, there's joy in relationship. So here's the second question that I, I want us just to, to introduce. <laughs> If, if, if we can all agree, this is the community that God has called us to be a part of. God wants us, God wants us to be devoted to these things, to his word and, and to prayer and to, to ministry, to fellowship and, and to corporate. God wants us to be devoted to those things. And as we're devoted to those things, we're going to see the, the fruit of those things born out in, in fellowship and in joy and in relationship. If that's true, what does it take? What is necessary for us to have the relationships and the fellowship and the community that, that God has designed here. Let me say this, too. Sometimes, uh, sometimes we can come to Acts chapter 2, and it can be kind of discouraging, right? Because, because we look at Acts chapter 2, and then we look around at each other, and we say, eh, I don't know about this. And, and oftentimes people will tell me, oh, I, just, you know, I just wish we were the New Testament church. I just wish we were the New Testament church. Well, hey, you know what? Acts chapter 2 is followed by Acts chapter 5. And Acts, you know, and Acts chapter 15, where there's like this church division. So And then there's the, the Corinthian church is also a New Testament church. So don't get too enamored with this church yet. They have some issues. But this is what we're striving for. This is what we're striving for. What does it take? What's necessary? We're going to talk through these more next week. But it's going to require mutual accountability. It's going to require... A sacrificial love. It's going to require covenant commitment. In other words, we're going to need to know that, that we're all in this together and we're covenanting together to pursue committed relationships. It's going to take humility on the part of, of leaders and the congregation. You're going to need boundaries. There's going to be, need to be clear demarcation of this This is in and this is out of the church. There's going to need to be submission to, to leadership. There's a lot of things that are required for this to work, for this reality to be manifested in our lives. You know, the, the Bible never says um, the Bible never says hey, you need to fill out you to print off from the internet or grab from, in, fill out a bunch of application forms and, you know, it never says that. But I hope what you can agree is as we've, as we've taken this phrase, church membership and put it on our, our shelf, we're keeping it nice and safe over there, we'll come back to it, but I hope we can all agree that what God has called us to is something much deeper. Much more real, much more profound. God has called us to life-transforming relationships. By being in a relationship with one another, our lives should look remarkably different than if we weren't in relationship with one another. It, it profoundly changes the trajectory of our lives to be in a relationship together. I hope we could all agree with that, and we could all recognize that these type of relationships are are not possible just by wanting them really badly. <laughs> They're only possible through the life-transforming work of Jesus Christ. That's why Acts chapter 2, verses 42 happen after Acts 2 41. They receive his word. They recognize that what he's saying is true about Jesus Christ. They place their faith in Jesus Christ first, and then these relationships follow. This is what God has called us to. And it's by joy in jesus christ that we pursue these relationships let's let's pray and father we we thank you for your word and we thank you for the ability we have to be in relationship with one another and through faith in your son jesus help us we pray as we we think about these things and as we try to pursue you and and think about what life in you looks like we pray that you'd help our relationships to bring glory and honor to you we pray this for your glory in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.